25 of uh, the, mo- the book of Matthew, 25 of the book of Matthew. As, as we have been seeing before, and maybe you, you know this already, but context in um, exegeting scriptures is king. We cannot just take isolated passages and um, make whatever we want with them. And so the context of uh, chapter 25 is uh, very important. We have spoken about Jesus being uh, this oil that we need for our life. Uh, He is the one who can give us light, who can give us life. And when he comes back, is that Jesus who will sustain us until the end. But now, as we consider chapter 25, verses 14 to 30, um, which is our portion this morning, we're going to see the impact that that gospel makes in our lives. It cannot be that the gospel of Jesus Christ has no impact in your lives. And that's what we are going to see this morning. And again, please, I apologize for the uh, typos in the bulletin. It's supposed to be 25, 14 to 30, not 25, 1 to 13. Uh, But anyway, our portion is 14 to verses 30 of chapter 25 of the book of Matthew. And if you are there, please stand to hear the uh, reading of God's holy and inspired word. This is God's word. For it will be, that is the kingdom of God, it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his uh, his master answered him, You wicked and slothful, slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the, the ten talents. For everyone who has will more for excuse me for to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an in abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated.
Um, in November 1888, uh, Vincent van Gogh um, took his canvas and went to a vineyard in France. And the question is, what was there? Well, nothing really exciting for uh, most people, just some men and some women uh, harvesting the vineyard. That's it. Yet for Van Gogh, that was precisely the beauty that was worth painting. Normal, plain, simple people, men and women, working with the rhythms of creation. The beauty that Van Gogh saw in a natural order has left uh, its mark to posterity, to posterity excuse me, for all of us to see. And uh, the name of, a, of the painting is The Red Vineyard Near Arles. And now, if you have seen the painting, and if you have not, I do recommend you see it, uh, you will see imprinted on it the passion, the harmony, the beauty of, of all the work that God has given to his creatures to be involved in. Because the reality is, congregation of the Lord, that our work here on earth is never meaningless to God. Van Gogh was deeply impressed with, uh, with it precisely because his deeply reformed instincts, not that he was reformed, but he was raised in a reformed house, and his deeply reformed instincts told him that the task that he was beholding before his face was not a void, but rather every single Christian is a laborer on God's kingdom. And that is, by the way, the title of my sermon this morning. We are laborers on God's kingdom. And we will see the text in two parts. First, we will see how we need to faithfully discharge our vocations. And second, how we need to avoid dullness and slothfulness or faithlessness. So first, faithfully discharging our vocations. And secondly, avoiding dullness and faithlessness. So let's enter the text and see the first part, faithfully discharging our God-given vocations in his kingdom. Now, the great assumption of this text, as I said before in this parable, is that Jesus Christ is the one, the oil, the person that we need. He is the one who comes and saves us, but he also comes and restores creation. And because he comes and restores humanity and creation, then he has given us tasks and duties that we need to be busy with here on earth. So listen how verse 14 starts again. For the kingdom of God will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To the one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, and to another, uh, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. So the kingdom of God, says Jesus Christ, is like this a very rich and very powerful man. The man, of course, is Jesus the king who calls his people to himself and then he endows them and gives them many, many gifts to live their lives with here on earth while, the, while he is away, while he lives for a time. The kingdom of God, brothers and sisters, is a treasure. It's filled with rich blessings that God himself in his wisdom has given to his people. And in his wisdom and at his discretion, he gives those gifts according to his will. Notice how there is no injustice in the kingdom of God. There are no fav favoritisms in the kingdom of God. God gives to those who can handle more, he gives more. And to those who can, who can handle less, he gives less. The partitioning of the money is just in every single case. However, even the most humble amount that he gives 
to his servants is still a great amount of money because one talent equals $2 million in our currency today, more or less. In other words, God has richly endowed, endowed his people with gifts here on earth. And in that vestowel of gifts, there is a multiformity, multiformity a, a, a wonderful richness that God has given his people to work in. And yes, brothers and sisters, and yes, boys and girls, over each one of you, God has disposed and has deposited a unique and a special ability, something that only you have, certain richness that gives you the potential to bring glory to God with your lives while you are here on earth. True, not all of us have the intellect of Paul. I don't think so. Or the boldness of Daniel. Or maybe the riskiness of Peter. But in all of us, there is a spark of the divine that God has placed in our hearts to each one of us according to his divine will. So we can put that to work and for his glory until he comes back. So listen what happens to the servants. Verses 16 and 18. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So as you can see from these verses, the mandate to the church that we heard for the first time in Eden, in the Garden of Eden, that hasn't changed, has it? Every Christian man and every Christian woman has the responsibility and the obligation to fight the weeds and the thorns that we face in this life and that have befallen upon creation. And for that task, Christians have been called by God himself to be his gardeners, uniquely gifted, uniquely given by him so they can advance God's kingdom while they are here on earth. You see, the kingdom of God is brought into this world not only through the preaching of the word, although that is the principal means of bringing the kingdom, but also through your faithful discharging of your duties and your vocations as a Christian. It is Christians that are called to bring the kingdom of God wherever they are, in the application to their vocations. Boys and girls, the way you behave in school, I know we are in vacations, but the way you behave in school, the way you interact with other people, with grace and mercy, that thing, that very same thing shines a different principle of life. And in studying hard, in being obedient to your parents and your teachers, in showing grace and mercy to others, in being good friends, you're actually bringing those implications of kingdom come already in your life to other people and producing profit for the glory of God. Because the gospel congregation of the Lord is a powerful and life-changing word. Once it touches our hearts and transforms our hearts for Jesus Christ, then everything in our lives is permeated by kingdom come, kingdom already here, Jesus ruling over us. And it affects the way we interact with everything. The Christian has been richly endowed by his master. The vocation of a Christian, as dull and boring and, and, and as horrible as it may seem for other people, as insignificant as it may uh, look to others, it is the most exciting and the most beautiful thing to God, simply because God is the one who has placed you there. And he rejoices in your efforts. 
the Christian spouse brings God's kingdom into his family life or her family life by the way they treat each other, by how they care for their children and so on. There is no way that God considers motherhood as something unimportant. Because even in that work, even in that simple thing, kingdom has come. Jesus is king. And that work has eternal consequences. It's not meaningless to God. It has a lot of, of implications. In fact, not how while the two servants engage the world with their gifts, the last one has simply run away and tried to hide himself and the gifts from the world. As if all that is required of him were to hide the precious gifts that God has given to him and then wait. As if the world that God has placed us in was a sinking Titanic. It doesn't make sense to work in it. We just need to abandon it to its destiny. No, brothers and sisters. While we are in this world, God has given us gifts to engage the world with for God's glory, for the advancement of his kingdom, and for the common good of the place that God has called us to be in. Reluctance to engage in, in his work, as if your faith had nothing to do with God's creation, is similar to this servant who simply doesn't want to work for God's glory. Now look what happens when the master of the kingdom returns, verses 19 and 21. And I'm going to skip here and there. The master came and settled accounts with them. And the servant said, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, because the wording of verses 22 to 23 is basically the same, the only thing that changes is the amount of money that they have, five and two. We will treat these two disciples, these two servants, as one and the same. In this too, the point is clear though. They both were faithful. They both worked for God's glory. They both produced much with their endeavors. And they both receive a recompense from God himself. And here's what this means for us, brothers and sisters. The work of Christians, whether that is big and impactful, like the Apostle Paul's preaching and his letters, like Augustine's influence over the West, like Wilberforce's influence over England, and like Kuiper over the Netherlands and America, or, or small and unnoticed, like ancient Christians rescuing babies from a ditch, like shoveling off snow from your neighbors, loving on one's wife, parenting with grace, and so on. All of those things have a recompense by God. Because the truth is that God in his grace and mercy rewards his people abundantly. Even when they are working with borrowed capital. Because all of what we have belongs to him. Nothing is ours. Everything belongs to God. But even then, Notice how he rejoices in rewarding the little efforts of his people. Little efforts of obedience that we do in order to bring, to bring glory to God. Take notice that this servant in the text, for example, he received $10 million. And then he made another 10. But listen what Jesus the king says. I have put you over little. Over little! As if $10 million were nothing! Why does Jesus say that? Because our God is abundant in riches. 
10 million? Pfft, nothing to him because he's the owner of the whole earth. So the joy of his master is the servant receiving eternal bliss with incul incalculable, incalculable worth. It's of infinite value. There you go, another word. <laughs> it is Jesus Christ with all his bliss given to you forever. That should be enough reason for any Christian to seek to serve God with their abilities and capacities. Are you good at draw, drawing stickmen? Great. Keep doing it for God's glory. Are you a good cooker? Great. Keep cooking for God's glory. Are you good at organizing? Are you an organizer? Keep doing it. Apply those talents for God's glory. Christian butchers, farmers, candlestick makers have nothing different in the way they do their craft. The difference is the principle of life that we have. It stems from a heart that wants to glorify God in everything we see and do. We work in our callings, callings always, always being aware that we live before the face of God. And we know, without a doubt, that there is nothing in this world and nothing in our work, nothing in our families that God does not consider sacred. It's for him. Notice also that Jesus is referring here to the final judgment in which he will recompense his people. Maybe we will labor all of our lives and we will not see any fruit. But that should not be an excuse. Because even then, we're still called to labor in God's kingdom, in whatever place we found ourselves right now. So in this first part of the text, Jesus is calling our attention to the gifts that he has given us and to our responsibility, yes, congregation of the Lord, our responsibility to be good kingdom workers. Kingdom come means transformed hearts. And transformed hearts do have implications in your vocations and in your callings. Why? Because Jesus he is the one who has washed your heart, has washed away your sins, has made you, made you a new person, and has given us every perfect gift with him. And that, that requires a response from us. Small steps of obedience, says the Heidelberg Catechism. And even then, filled, filled with recompenses from God. This brings us then to the other side of the coin. Our second part that warns us not to be dull and slothful or faithless in our labors. Hear the words of the last servant. Master, he says, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Now in the West, because we live in a different society, uh, we are very quickly to side with the servant. We think in terms of employee, employer. But this is not that, brothers and sisters. This servant is accusing his master, there I say, of victimizing himself before his owner because he didn't want to do his job. As a slave, he doesn't have any right to say to his master, I don't want to work. His life is not his. The money that he has is not his. And therefore, 
he didn't have the right to simply ignore the command that the master has given him. And what is worst, it assumed the worst of the master. Does that sound very familiar? There is an echo here from scriptures themselves, congregation. It reminds us of the very same situation with Adam and Eve, does it not? When God came to the garden, Adam and Eve were there. And Adam did not accept his guilt, did he? Instead, he pretended to be a victim. He said, it's your fault, God, because you gave me this woman. And then the woman betrayed by her husband, when she heard that, she didn't accept her guilt either, did she? Rather, she said, it's all the serpent's fault. In the end, it's all your fault, God. The same thing is happening here, boys and girls. When we sin against God, it is very easy to run away from him, is it not? In fact, we blame everyone else. We are never the ones who are in guilt, are we? And the culture we live has become just an echo chamber of that very situation with Adam and Eve. It's always everyone else's fault. It's even God's fault, but it's never our fault. And so we saw an ungratefulness, division, we are unfair, we attack others, we destroy lives, we destroy cities, we destroy families, we destroy churches. And we never stop to consider if it is our fault. That is what is happening with this servant here in the text. And of course, it's a warning. Do not be like him. Do not be lazy. Do not be passive with your gifts. Do not try to justify your sins. Do not run to a corner and think that if you do nothing and just wait until the end of the world, then everything is going to be okay. Because you are hiding from the world. Let me tell you, it won't be okay. Some people may be able to get their own way today, but not with Jesus. Listen to him, that is Jesus. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I, where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have, have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. Notice how Jesus refers and speaks to this man. Wicked and slothful. Wicked because he refused to obey his master. And slothful because he has not exercised the precious gifts given to him by the master. His disobedience becomes in this parable the paradigm of a person who loves to tamper with God's grace. As if the gospel would make no change in our lives. God's grace gets often abuse in that way, believing that the gospel makes no effect in, in one's life or that it doesn't have to. We are just okay. When that understanding infiltrates the church, it cheapens God's grace. It cheapens God's grace. Because God's work of grace is powerful, congregation of the Lord. It changes hearts. It transforms people. It moves them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Transforms the inclinations of our hearts from evil to good and the spirit is the one who makes us to want to love god to want to obey him to want to be like him and serve him there is no way in other words according to scriptures that a truly regenerate person would respond like this wicked servant and what i'm saying by the way it may sound 
very, very strong. But I'm not saying we are to be perfect. When you become a Christian, you don't become perfect. That is not what I'm saying. But when you become a Christian, you start to oppose everything that is sinful in your life. Precisely because there is something new in you. Something that will oppose sin until you die. Resistance to the Master's will in such a blatant and straightforward way is no part of the Christian life. True, Christians sin. And they can sin a lot. They still oppose God's will in, in their lives. There is still sin in us until we die. But at the same time, Christians want to serve God. They want to please Him. They want to work for God's glory. They want to see God's kingdom advancing in their hearts, in their minds, in their lives, in their families, and so on. Notice how different the servant is from the other two. The contrast here is between work and laziness. True servants of Christ, no matter how small the effort, do work for his glory. False servants, on the other hand, are always lazy, always opposing Jesus. That is why Jesus has such strong words against the servant. Not because he's an imperfect servant. That is not in view. Imperfection is not in view. What is in view is a rebellious wicked servant who is demonstrated right, right now before the face of the, of the master that he never cared for his master. The only thing that he cares about is himself. Wickedness and slothfulness represent two whole different life principles. It is ethically opposed to the gospel. It is oriented and aligned with the work of the devil. It follows after the serpent's way. In fact, it shows that the serpent, the devil, has never stopped crawling into his heart. And he is opposing God against everything that he has commanded him. And that opposition will continue until the end. So listen to the consequences for this wicked servant. Verses 28 to 30. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the other darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there is a double deprivation if you saw in those verses. First, the wicked servant is deprived from God's gifts. They are given to the other servant. And if that seems unfair to you, oh, why God is doing that? Let me remind you. This is God. He's the one who owns everything. He can give those gifts to whomever he wants because those are his. Second, there is a deprivation of the beatific vision. Instead of enjoying the glory of his master, instead of seeing God as he is, the wicked servant will, will experience the eternal wrath of his master. There is no bliss for the wicked. Don't get confused. Sin never gets recompensed. It gets damnation all the time so if you think oh christian maybe you're being too strong this is not very pastoral of you please note i'm just saying what the text is saying nothing else here however there is the comfort of the gospel for you in this morning the story of the wicked servant does not need to be your story after all that is why we have this parable here in such and strong terms is it for Christ's 
church to pay heed and to pay attention to the warning. So the question is, what are we to do? Shall the message be that we better get working in our own efforts and in our own strength? Let me tell you, that won't do, dear brothers and sisters. Because that thing will only proclaim a false gospel of salvation by works. And that, that is not the point of this parable. Rather, the point of this parable is that we need to look to Christ in faith and we need to trust in him. And as we look to him in faith, as we believe in his promises and as we cling from Jesus Christ, as we recognize that we are sinners in need of Jesus, then if you are coming to Jesus for the first time in your life, then Jesus will instill this new life principle in you and the Holy Spirit will unite you to Jesus Christ and will start to work in you. But if you already are a believer, then trusting in Jesus will simply move you to once again put your focus not in your works, but in Jesus Christ, the source and the fountain of your salvation, of your life and of your comfort. It will remind you that you belong to him, that he loves you already and that he has died for you on the cross. And as we are waiting for his second coming, he has given you gifts that you need to exercise. One of them, the bigger of them, is the Holy Spirit in your life. This Spirit will move you in your heart and will naturally and organically teach you how to walk the Christian life. It will remind you to live by faith. It will move you to see God's glory in your vocation, in your family, in your relationships, in everything you do, everywhere. This Spirit of God will naturally move, move you to become a faithful servant. It will lead you to avoid, yes, avoid world flight. Don't go away from the world. That's the field God is calling you to work in. And while you serve God in this world, and when the final day comes, it is that very same Spirit that you are trusting in and that will be sustaining you that will help you to stand before the Father and Jesus, and you will hear these words, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter in the joy of your master. In the meantime, congregation, as we wait to hear those words, what shall we do? Well, we should follow the example of Van Gogh. We should grab our canvases, that is our lives, and we shall engage the world for God's glory because nothing, nothing is mundane for him. Everything that we do is sacred. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, the callings that you have given us and the multiformity of your grace um, is so big that in everything that we do, you are glorified. And we pray, Lord, that as we um, engage with the world and as we see the days ahead, uh, we pray that you may sustain us. It's, it's very easy, Lord, to have the temptation to run away from the world, to cluster ourselves and to um, abandon everything. Yet, Lord, your calling is not to do that. Your calling is uh, for us to fight sin, uh, for us to uh, show grace to others and to build uh, each other in in grace and in love so help us lord and as we go to the world and as we uh, seek to serve you may we bring your kingdom into application and may we shine your glories here in montrose and in every single town that we work uh, we pray in jesus name amen <laughs>